We're looking this morning at the joy of foreordination. This is from Acts 4, verses 16 and following. You notice from your bulletin outline, the first point we want to talk about is chance versus foreordination. Evolutionists deny the creator-creation documents of the Bible, opting instead for the notion that our very complex world is the product of chance. The formula is this, time plus chance equals the natural world that we see and experience. That is why the late Carl Sagan and his followers still continue to promote the need for billions and billions of years. They think that given enough time, random chance will find a way to become productive by spontaneous generation. Life happening out of the void. Life from inanimate objects. What is never discussed in these evolutionary think tanks is the origin of the original matter from which the Big Bang is supposed to have occurred. Material or matter is eternal in the evolutionary scheme of things. So it is, again, as Paul taught, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things, in this case matter, rather than the Creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. Romans 1, verse 25. In other words, anything and everything but the Creator. Anything but having to answer to a personal creator gone. Let me tell you this morning that there is nothing is eternal except God. Just think about this. All else in our world, all else in our universe had a beginning and will one day have an end. The only eternal that we know about is God. Now that's the first thing. The other absurdity, which is never addressed by evolutionists, is the concept that life originated from non-life. The living from inanimate objects. If a scientist were to encase a stone in a glass-protected environment and feed it with light and water and warmth and nutrients and vitamins and minerals and amino acids and any number of a hundred other building blocks of life, if he kept that stone in this pristine environment for a billion years or 50 billion years, 
Does anyone with reasonable intelligence believe that that stone would come alive? And this with a scientist bringing all of his expertise to the equation. Such assumptions are based on irrational faith. And they say our faith is stupid. Our faith is irrational. To believe in a personal creator, God. So if then chance plus time is not the originator of life, how did life come about? Let me read it for you. John 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 1, 1 1-4. How is it possible for Christ to have the power to bestow life? John 5, verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. In other words, what He is saying is, Jesus is teaching here, that the origin of life is God whether it's God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, they have life in themselves. It's important to understand, it's not a derived life, but an innate life. And no other being is self-animating. None. God may then animate other living things, In Him was life, and that life became, or was, the light of men. John 1, verse 4. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, here's what he wrote. The life appeared, writes John. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 1 John 1, verse 2. He's talking about Christ. If you read on in the text, it talks about them handling and being able to touch the very Word of God. The creative power of Jesus is stated categorically by the Apostle John and is phrased in such near Genesis vocabulary that no student of the Bible would miss its significance. Let me read you Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. That's Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3. Now let me read to you again John 1, verse 1 and following. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 1, verse 1 and 2. The Word of creation, which God the Father spoke, with life resulting, was His Son Jesus, whom John calls the Word and identifies as the one who was with God at the Genesis beginning. If you remember what we read there in Genesis, the Spirit of God was also there, hovering over the waters. John writes, Through Him all things were made. Without Him... Nothing was made that has been made. Paul is even more definitive, speaking of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. That means he is, it's a statement on his pre-existence, his eternality. He's not part of the creation, but he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have thee supremacy. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18. So it was not chance that brought about the universe as we know it, and in particular the living beings who occupy it. But rather, as the scripture says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Genesis 1, verse 27. To suggest, as evolutionists do, that our intricate human bodies evolved is absurd. Even the psalmist, who had limited access to scientific data, could and did acknowledge to God, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. Psalm 139 verse 13 and 14. Would to God our nation and the world understood what the psalmist knew about the creation of his own body. Now you need to understand that none of this is accidental or incidental. Rather it was and it is on purpose. Every life has a programmed destiny. Again the psalmist says, Your eyes saw my unformed body and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139 verse 16. No one is born prematurely. No one dies before his or her time. 
Our days are numbered and they're written in God's book. Oh, and yes, not only are they numbered, but they, <clears throat> excuse me, they are ordered. The scripture says, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moon. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. Psalm 90 verse 9 and 10. There is nothing left to chance <coughs> in all of this. For ordination program. Now secondly, what about foreknowledge and foreordination? You ever want to wonder what it means to know something? To know something. Say, well, you're only getting philosophical this morning. I know. This is, a, this is a bit philosophical, but hang in there. If you say, I know the sky is blue. What is the rationale for that statement? Without getting into the scientific jargon of dust particles and refracted rays of the sun and so on, you know the sky is blue because you have witnessed it with your own eyes on a hundred different occasions. You also know that there are gray skies in times of storm. There are red skies at twilight. There are black skies during tornadoes, etc. Experience has been your teacher, and you trust your senses to have informed you correctly about the color of the sky. What is more, you understand that hypothesis is not the same as knowledge. When the January scare hit the news media, media that the world would end at the end of December because the Maya calendar predicted such, people could not, <coughs> in good conscience, state that as a fact. They could not say something like, I know the world's coming to an end, December 31st. Now, their fear may have been because they perceived it as a fact, but most people accepted this prediction as an unproven theory, and they slept quite well on December 31st of 2012. They understand the difference between fact and hypothesis. And the point I am making is that for something to be known, it has to be certain. You cannot know the hypothetical. Theory is hypothetical. Prognostication is hypothetical. You can say, from June 1st to June 12th, our family will be vacationing in Colorado. But you cannot know that. Why not? Because things unforeseen and unbeknown to you may so disrupt your life that vacationing in Colorado will become an impossibility. 
The Bible puts it this way. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Or again, a man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? Proverbs 20, verse 24. Or again, if the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. Though he stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him <coughs> with his hand. Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24. This is why James cautions us as believers. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we, we, will, we, we will go to this or that city and we'll spend a year there and we'll carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow, says James. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And as it is, you boast and you brag and all such boasting is evil. James 4, verse 13 through 16. He's just telling us what I've been saying. You can't say something is going to be just because you plan it. So you see, you may not be around for your June vacation to Colorado. Or you may be too sick to go to Colorado. Or you may have financial reversals that cause you to abandon your plans. Any number of things could happen between now and June, and so it would be absurd for you to say with any kind of confidence, I know my family will be on vacation in Colorado in June. No, you can say, we are planning. You can say, we hope to be. But you cannot say, I know. James answers, well, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow, let alone in a few months. Now contrast this to God who declares, <clears throat> remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what's still to come. I say, <coughs> my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. Or again, Yes, and from ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, you cannot reverse it. Isaiah 43, verse 13. King Nebuchadnezzar was brought to this awareness through God's judgment on his pride. And when God was done with him, Nebuchadnezzar made this confession. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God does as He pleases. 
with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Daniel 4, verse 35. And the wise man Solomon concurs. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Proverbs 21 and verse 30. Now from these texts we begin to see that there is a vast difference, a vast difference between what we know and what God knows. And we ask this question, doesn't the same criteria apply to God for knowing as with us? And the answer is yes. God can only know what is certain, not the hypothetical. But the difference is that whatever God ordains for the present or the future is never uncertain. If He declares it, it is true. If he plans it, it's a done deal. If he predicts it, it will come to pass. That's a vast difference. And this puts God into a totally different category than us. We can also know what is certain, but unlike God, we cannot make things certain. We can plan. We can postulate. We can do our homework and use all of our skills to construct a scenario that we hope to implement, but without control of all the variables, we cannot say with God, what I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Isaiah 46, verse 11. Only God has that power and that authority. And observe here that even the future plans of God are contemplated. What I have planned, this will I do. Even though the reality may be off in the distance somewhere. This is why prophecy in Scripture becomes reliable and trustworthy for us who do the reading and studying who are not even in the same category. These prophecies in Scripture are not in the same category as the human prognosticators like Nostradamus or the Maya shaman who predicted the end of the world in 2012. God declares, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what's still to come. I do that. And he's covering the whole spectrum of history in that statement. From ancient times to what's coming. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46, verse 10. And then two chapters later in the same book, Isaiah 48, God tells us some of the reasons behind His predictions, behind the way he operates. Here it is. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. And then suddenly I acted. So he's foretelling, he's saying, and then he's acting. And they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. 
The sinews of your neck were iron, your forehead was bronze. Therefore I told you these things long ago. Now listen, before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my idols did them. My wooden image, my metal gods ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them. Will you not admit them? From now on I will tell you of new things, of hidden things, unknown to you. They are created now, not long ago. You've not heard of them before today. And so you cannot say, yeah, I knew them. No, you didn't. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ear has not been open. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. Isaiah 48, verses 3 through 8. What is God saying? He's saying he knows his plan and he's working his plan. He knows his plan and he's working it. God has foreknowledge of the future because he has ordained the future events. So he knows the plan and he's working the plan. Okay, then number three. What about foreordination and human responsibility? Let me say that foreordination is not the same as fatalism. Fatalism teaches that all events are predetermined and therefore, get the next word now, unalterable. That's fatalism. In other words, you cannot exercise any decision making that changes the end result. Foreordination, however, renders the events of the future certain, but makes allowance for free will decisions in human beings. We have this in our text. Look at Acts 4, beginning at verse 26. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Anointed one is the actual translation of the Greek word Christos, Christ. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. And by the way, this is a quote from Psalm 2. He goes on. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to, uh, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did, now here's the phrase, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's foreordination. These people are exercising their free will. They're doing some things to Jesus. But in so doing, Luke, the author of this text, says, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand would actually happen. Again, Acts 2, flip back a couple pages. Acts 2, verse 23, words it this way. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set 
purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by kneeling him to a cross. Acts 2 verse 23. Again, human responsibility brought in right alongside of the foreknowledge of God. Or again, Peter preaching to the Jewish crowd on that day. Acts 3, verse 17 and 18. Now, brothers, he says, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ, his anointed one, would suffer. It went down that way. But you had a part in it. Now, I want you to observe five points here. I'm just going to run through them fast. The event, in this case Jesus' crucifixion, was determined by God to occur long before it happened. It's not an afterthought with God. We'll see some other texts on this. Number two. Jesus was handed over to wicked men, apart from which no amount of human force could have caused it to happen. Jesus said to Pilate, unless my father had given you this power, you would have no authority over me. Peter whipped out his sword in the garden when the soldiers came to arrest Christ and cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And he was rebuked by Jesus for that. Put your sword away. Put it away. And then he said this. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Matthew 26, verse 53. One legion, six, 12 legions, 72,000 legion, angels are at my disposal. If I need help, I don't need your sword. Number three, truth. It was wicked men carrying out their own wicked scheme that resulted in Jesus' arrest, the kangaroo court, the trial, and the death sentence. But in all of this, God did not make these men do what they did, nor did he make them wicked so that murder was in their heart. They were all these things by their own sinful jealousy, and their actions were free and not compelled. Whoa. Number four. In all this, the prophecies concerning Jesus' suffering and death were fulfilled. He went just as the way, just the way the scripture said it would go down. And number five, because there was no coercion on God's part, the human players are responsible and accountable for the sin that they perpetrated. Foreordination and human responsibility. None but God can determine outcomes as certain while allowing sinners to be themselves and defy his moral laws and do their own wicked thing, but in the end stay within the framework of his eternal decrees or full ordination. I want to tell you, brethren, that's real sovereignty. That's real sovereignty. Despots like Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin 
attempted to gain victory for their plans by forcing their wills on the people through any and all means, even if it meant imprisonment and torture and death. God does no such thing. What he does is to foreordain the certainty of the event while allowing people to act freely, even if sinfully, <laughs> so that in the end his will is accomplished and they are still responsible for their conduct. That's real power. That's true sovereignty over the circumstances. No wonder when, he, when we are... Uh, hear of this, we are called upon to tremble. Jesus said, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Matthew 26, verse 24. God's sovereignty over the events of our world never excuses it never dismisses our responsibility to respond aright to what He has revealed in the Scripture. We do not live our lives out by what we think we know about the decrees of God. We live our life out by thus saith the Lord. And we have a book in front of us where He breaks it all down for us. Now that brings us then to this whole idea of foreordination and eternity. You'll notice the first point there. Jesus' crucifixion fulfilled God's eternal plan of atonement for sin. The very first prophecy in the Bible deals with the seed of the woman, Jesus, who would do battle with Satan over the souls of men. Let me read it for you. And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will, you will strike his heel. Galatia, Genesis 3, verse 15. Yeah, there's going to be this battle, and you're going to wound him, but he's going to crush you. Isaiah predicted Jesus' suffering. He was fierce, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each to his own has turned his own, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before the shearers are, is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53, verse 5 through 7. Or in Matthew, now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the disciples aside and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day he will be raised to life. Matthew 20, 17 through 90. Now you see, he knows his fear. He knows his future because God has mapped it out. John the Baptist, upon meeting Jesus, declared, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. There's that pre-existent statement again. I myself did not know him, but... 
The reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. John 1, 29 through 34. The writer of Hebrews explains why this was God's plan. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. This atonement through the cross of Christ was no afterthought with God, but His plan from eternity. Revelation 13, 8 identifies Jesus as, I'm reading scripture, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Fordained, foreordained from eternity. It's not like God is playing catch-up football. We do something wicked. And he says, oh, I didn't really count on that. Let me see what I can do. No, 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 no. It's all mapped out as certain because God's foreknowledge linked to his foreordination. Secondly, this is very important for you and me. The recipients of Jesus' cross work were also foreordained. Say it this way. You're not an accident. If you're a believer today, that's not accidental. Let me read it to you from the scriptures. Paul says to God, of God, He chose us in Him when? Before the creation of the world. That's when. To be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And remember what we've read about that, that no one can thwart his will. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. 
in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, he writes, were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. I'll just interrupt the reading here to ask the question. How does a person know that they were singled out by God to be recipients of Jesus' atoning sacrifice? He answers, Having believed, you were marked. I could just stop there. Let me read the whole verse. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 14. You're not an accident. God ordained that you would come to know Christ before the creation of the world. Have you believed? That's a good question. Will you believe the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? If you will, the promise is this. To all who receives him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent. No, no, no. Not of human decision. Uh-uh. Or of a husband's will. No, no. But born of God. John 1. Verse 12 and 13. You see anything iffy about that? You see anything nebulous? This all fits in with God's determined plan. And then thirdly, salvation obtained is eternal and it's without repeal. That's one of the glorious things about salvation. Although he was a son, the writer says, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews 5, verse 8 and 9. Paul writes, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. How it is... Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set His seal of ownership on us, put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. Or if you want it from Romans 11, verse 29, it says God's gifts and His call. Get the next word are irrevocable. Whoa. If he's determined it, it's going to go down that way. And if he calls you, he's not going to change his mind. And if he saves you, you're not going to be lost. Let me put it in Jesus' own words. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can.
and snatch them <coughs> out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. John 10, verse 27 through 30. This is the joy of foreordination. Part of it, anyway. Jesus, contemplating the cross, said this. For the writer of Hebrews describes him as saying this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2. I read a text like that and I say, what possible joy could there be for Jesus in contemplating the torturous death of the cross? Let him answer for himself. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you, Father, did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And then I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews 10, verse 5. And that will of God, as we have studied this morning, meant a cross by which Jesus would pay the debt of his people's sins so that they could be forgiven on his merit. That was the joy he contemplated. I'm paying the price. I'm atoning for the sins of those who believe in me. And in another text in John 6, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and of all that come to me, I will lose none. None. The ones upon whom God set his affection in eternity past were recorded in the Lamb's book of life, the scripture says. And all recorded there will hear. All recorded there will believe. All recorded there will be forgiven and adopted into God's family forever. That's what Jesus meant when he said from the cross, it is finished. It is finished. Are you among the someones? You can be. But not on your terms. Not trying to work your way to heaven. Not thinking that you have some good that you can contribute. But only through repentance of your sins and faith in the merit and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. I'm glad for ordination. I'm glad nobody can thwart the plans of God. Because I got to tell you that if we could, none would be saved. Not one. We have all gone astray. We have all turned to our own ways. There's none righteous. Not even one. Lord Jesus, please teach us the truth and the beauty of foreordination and the glory 
who hang a God that can make things certain and yet still hold us accountable. For every unbeliever here this morning, Lord, you hold them accountable for that unbelief. It's like calling God a liar. God has spoken, but they're going to try doing their own thing. They're going to ignore God. I pray that you will help us not to do that. Grant to us the faith we don't have and the repentance that we don't want because we love our sin. And we who know thee, we thank you for making salvation certain. Yes, it's through means. It's through the preaching of God's word and hearing the gospel and believing and repenting and all of those various things that the Bible also teaches. But there's nothing shaky about any of that. For those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life from all of eternity. Lord, bring salvation to your people today. And we who know you, may we rejoice, may be a part of our <clears throat> joy today as we think about the fact that we are not an accident. Our salvation was not an accident. It was on purpose. You loved us and you came for us. In that we rejoice in Jesus' name.